are in Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming around, and you can just get their attention. We'd love to give you a copy. If you don't own one, you can just take that Bible. It's a gift to you. We want you to have it. We love studying the Bible together. Um, or you can follow along with us on the Bible app and kind of take your notes in there. We are in Mark chapter 14. i got to confess to you, this is one of the weirdest Sundays of the year uh, to figure out, like, what are we going to do? Like, what are, what are, what are we, what, how do we handle this once Christmas is over? And, and I hope you enjoyed your Christmas and had a great time and we're celebrating and, and that's all great. And like, like we don't even know who's going to be around this week. And, uh, and, and, and honestly, as, as I was thinking about it, um, I think because of what Christmas means, um, there really is no better thing that we could do than to jump in, back into the book of Mark where we're kind of, it's going to feel a little bit like a contrast between the celebration that he's coming and really kind of the dark pages of Scripture that we're in here in Mark chapter 14. But this is the reason for Christmas, right? And I think as we close out the year, uh, I think it'll be really good for us to turn our attention here uh, to the cross. And uh, Mark um, 14 uh, just to recap, I think this is helpful for you to kind of get the big idea. Uh, Mark, the book of Mark is really trying to been, uh, answer two questions for us. Uh, the first question he's been trying to answer is, who in the world is this guy Jesus? Who, who is Jesus? And then secondly, what does it mean uh, to be his disciple? And, and Mark made a claim all the way uh, back at the very beginning. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he said, Jesus is the Christ, that's the word for Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And ever since uh, Peter made his confession at about the halfway point in in chapter 8 where he uh, confessed the same thing and he said, you are the Christ, ever since that point, the rest of the book of Mark, Jesus has been trying to show us what that means to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, and and showing us uh, what the mission of the Messiah was, what he came to do. Namely, we saw this in chapter 10, verse 45, kind of the, the key verse of the entire book, that the Son of Man did not just come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so here we are, chapter 14, we're kind of speeding towards the end, going to the cross, as Jesus has already predicted would happen three times. Kind of a, a dark section of the story. Um, but one of the things that we have seen is that Jesus, in, in, in the book of Mark, he really stands out. He stands out, one, because of his power. His power stands out because of all the, the miracles that he can do. And he, I mean, check out some of the things that he's able to do. Nobody else can do what he does. He also stands out because of his authority. And, and the way that he teaches is so shockingly different than everybody else, and it, and it stands out. You see Jesus stand in stark contrast, especially to uh, the, the religious leaders, right? They're, they're, they're the bad guys of the story. Uh, But here in uh, Mark chapter 14, we're going to see the contrast of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, These guys are the the ones that we would normally consider um, the good guys. Jesus even stands out from them. So, like, this might be kind of a weird imagery, but I also want you to think about uh, it's kind of like seeing a bright red cardinal in the snow. Or, or a, a sparkling diamond against a black canvas. It's, it's, the contrast is so stark that it just kind of pops out there. 
That's how shocking and, and, and highlighting his incredible beauty. That's Jesus compared to everybody else. Because even compared to the disciples, the, the good, good guys, uh, they're still sinners. Only Jesus is not. And so from here on out, he's going to have to go from here alone as the sinless Messiah because only he could pay for our sins. And so if you're taking notes, here's, let me give you a big idea of the text before we jump into it. Here, here it is. Um, Jesus chose to suffer alone in the place of sinners who don't deserve it. Can I show that to you? Mark chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 32. Starting in verse 32, it says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and praying, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Father, I thank you for um, this word and an opportunity to jump back into the scripture here in the book of Mark. And uh, we find ourselves, um, Lord, this stands in stark contrast to what we were just looking at and celebrating in the last few weeks. The fact that, that you came as a, as a baby, but as a king. The king that not only the world needs, but the king that we want. The whole reason is because of this. This is why you came. And so, Lord, I'm praying that you would help us to treasure Jesus more than anything today. I pray that you would show us the contrast, that you would stand out again. And may we love you. And uh, may we, as we finish out 2018 and start a new year, may we really start it in a, a place of humble dependence on you. We're thankful for what you accomplished for us, that you did this because you, you chose it. You surrendered your will to it. And I confess there's things in here that I don't completely understand, but I pray that you would make us uh, illumine our hearts, help us to see this. And I pray that we would see Jesus stand out today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to show you two contrasts of, of Jesus and sinners, uh, but I want to personalize it. So here's one. Note this. He was submissive to suffering, 
because I am weak. I'm just going to confess something to you that, that um, I wrestled with this text. I wrestled with this story um, because I don't know that we completely understand and, and, and comprehend um, the depths of Jesus' suffering. Fair? When we normally think about Jesus' suffering, what, what, what I think about is, is the cross. We, we, we think about um, the, the, the crown of thorns that went on, and, and we think about the lashes on his back, and we, we, we think about the nails in his hand and all of the blood, and we think about him kind of suffocating there on the cross. We think about the physical pain. We, we, we think about the torment that he went through. But I think if that's all that we think about, we're actually missing the horror that caused Jesus to, to pause before he went to the cross. We, we, we often think about what he did for us on the cross, but there's something going on here in the garden. Mark tells us that he went to a place called uh, Gethsemane. Gethsemane, uh, I've got a, a map here for you just to kind of picture where this is happening, okay? Um, this is the city of Jerusalem. You've got to remember, the city of Jerusalem is built on a hill, and it goes up like this, and this is the, 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 the pinnacle right where the temple was, goes down into a valley, the Kidron Valley, and back up to the Mount of Olives. Here is the Garden of Gethsemane, just to the east of the city, uh, kind of at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and apparently there's a garden here. I've got a picture. I got to, uh, a chance to go into what they think was the Garden of Gethsemane. It was incredibly beautiful. Don't really know if, if this is what it would have looked like for him. It's probably likely that there were olive trees there, but apparently Jesus loved to come here. Because in John chapter 18, it tells us that, that uh, Judas knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So apparently Jesus is coming here a lot. He spent a lot of time here with his disciples. But even the, the, the name itself actually conjures up and is suggestive of suffering. The name Gethsemane kind of comes from the Hebrew Aramaic word uh, for oil press. So this may have been a garden, a place um, where they would have extracted oil from olives. And in fact, I've got a, a picture of, of what an olive press would have looked like. And so you can just kind of imagine this stone uh, grinding and, and, and crushing the olives and squeezing out the oil. That's actually the imagery of what's happening to Jesus right here in the garden, that he is being pressed under the crushing weight of suffering. And so while he's here, he, he takes with him Peter and James and John. He takes his, his inner circle of friends. This is what you do when, when, when you're hurting, when you're going through something, when you're struggling, when you're in a lot of pain. There's probably just a, a, a few people that you're really close to that you want around you in Moments like that. And so, so, so Jesus calls them, and, and the text says that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Distressed means, means actually uh, amazed or astounded. It's like Jesus is kind of in shock, almost like he didn't expect this. 
Like what, what's going on that Jesus is, is literally astounded and, and, and troubled means uh, that he's despondent and in anguish. He's just overwhelmed with disappointment and, and, and almost hopelessness in this moment. And we're looking at it like, what's going? We've never seen Jesus like this. Man, every time we've seen Jesus in the book of Mark, he, we, we've seen him, you know, there's a, there's a massive storm and everybody else is freaking out. And he's like, guys, I got this. And he walks up and he calms the storm, right? Or we see him look out on, on the crowds of hurting people who are sick and dying and needy. And he looks out at them with, with compassion, but also with the power and the ability to, to heal it, to stop it. We've seen him fearlessly stand up to uh, the religious leaders that hate him and, and, and call them out for their sin. And, and he's predicted his death. And we've seen him walk right into Jerusalem knowing that they're wanting to kill him. And, and, and Jesus knew all of this was going to come. He, here he is, distressed and troubled. He, he knew this was happening tonight. In fact, verse 30, he just told Peter, this very night you will deny me. So he, he knew it was coming, but here he is, psychologically rocked to the core. He says, my, my soul is very sorrowful. It's my inner being, even to the point of death. He is deeply and emotionally grieving. You, you, you can almost hear the, the desperation in his voice. Maybe, maybe you've had somebody who, um, uh, that you know and love and you're really close to, and they, and they sent you a text, and, and kind of out of the blue, and they sent you a text that just said, please pray, dot, dot, dot. That was it. You're like, yeah, of course I'm going to pray, but what's going on? What's happening? What, what, why is Jesus like this? What's, what's, what's happening in this, in this moment? He just tells them, remain, remain here and watch. And then, and then we see him staggering under the intensity of it like he's, he's not going to make it. He goes on a little further and he, he fell to the ground and he prayed, if this were possible, that the hour might pass for him. He's saying, what is happening to Jesus right now? I think there's a little bit of mystery here that maybe we've been missing. Because we start to ask the question, why? Why, why is he going, why is he, this is kind of dramatic. I mean, what's, what's really happening? Why is, he, why is he suffering like this? And Tim Keller actually asked the question that I think, if we're honest, maybe all of us are kind of wondering, why is it that many of Jesus' followers have died, quote, better than Jesus? You feel that? Like, it doesn't take long if we actually compare Jesus to some other martyrs. And you think about other people that have seemingly faced their deaths with a whole lot more courage and resolve than Jesus is showing right now. And some people have gone through some awful things. And they, 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 they've gone through deaths and torture, like, like the torture of watching loved ones be tortured right in front of you and then being tortured and killed. Like, so why is it so bad here? Like what, what's really happening? Jesus knew this was coming. 
fact, chapter 9, he told us exactly what was going to happen. He predicted. He said they're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to flog him. They're going to kill him. His, his whole life has been building towards this moment. He knew it was coming. He walked into Jerusalem knowing this was going to happen. But here he is writhing and, and, and falling to the ground asking to avoid it. So I think we have to understand this. It cannot just be the ominous physical suffering that he knew was coming. There's got to be something more here. Because I don't know, like, if you've really thought about this before, but um, I, I, I wrestled with this. It's, it's entirely possible um, that at some point you've heard of a scenario that somebody's gone through, or you could even imagine, not that this is really uh, pleasant to think about, but I mean, the cross is terrible. It, that was a horrible way to die. But you could almost imagine um, a more gruesome and terrifying way to be tortured and died, couldn't you? So here's what I want you to notice. As we get closer in the next few weeks, as we get closer to the cross, I want you to notice that Mark and the other gospel writers they actually don't go into and give us all sorts of graphic details and focus in on the horrific gore of the cross. We see that in the movies and we see it in depictions and pictures of that and, and it was awful. It was horrifying. But maybe we've placed so much emphasis on the physical torture that Jesus endured that we've missed something so much worse that he was going through. He says, uh, Abba, Father, Abba, that, that, that word could be translated Daddy. It was so, so intimate that nobody would use that in reference to God. Only the, only the Son could cry out to his Father like that. He says, remove this cup from me. The cup is what has Jesus reeling and, and staggering and dropping him to his knees here. The, the cup in Scripture was actually uh, symbolic of God's judgment and God's wrath. In fact, I've got Isaiah 51 for you on the screen. Isaiah 51, 17 says, You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. It's, it's that cup that Jesus is being handed right here. It's the cup of God's wrath, and He's being uh, offered this. He can't escape it. You're going to have to drink it. It's one thing for Him to mentally know it's coming. Now, Jesus is actually beginning to experience it. He's got it in His hands, and, and He's beginning to get his first whiff of it and kind of getting his first taste of it. And I don't know that we can imagine just how putrid and horrifying that must have been. That, that he was about to bear all of our sin and be crushed by the full weight of the wrath of God. Isaiah 53 says that he was crushed for our iniquities and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so James Edwards said it this way, it is one thing, fearful as it will be, to answer for our own sins before a holy and almighty God. But who can imagine what it would be like to stand before God to answer for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil in the world? 
Man, we have seen some incredibly awful things in this world. And we feel that sense of justice. Like, that needs to be dealt with. It needs to be punished. It needs to be set right. And Jesus was going to bear all of that. What Jesus is experiencing in the garden is not just physical suffering. It's intense spiritual suffering that none of us could ever imagine. Because no one else could do this. And it was crushing his soul to look up to heaven and to begin to see and taste a different response from his father than he's ever known. You think about what it's been like for him in his relationship with the father. His entire life. Mark chapter 1. In Jesus' baptism, the heavens are opened up and the Father looks down and we hear the voice saying, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. But what's crazy is the Son has existed before eternity began. He exists outside of time. And Jesus prays in John chapter 17. He looks up to the Father and he said, you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Son has always existed in this intimate, loving relationship with the Father for all of eternity. But now, in this moment in the garden, instead of looking up into the the smiling acceptance and favor and love, he saw in his Father's eyes his displeasure and a flash of anger against evil and rebellion, and he's going to pour out his wrath on him. And he knew that soon he was going to be forsaken. And I don't even know how that's possible that the the triune God could experience this. But the son was going to feel the true torment of hell. The separation and alienation from his father. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for Jesus, in that moment, to look up and have a completely different experience. So maybe we stop asking, why is he suffering so much, and ask, why would he go through this? Why would he do that? He says, remove this cup from me. He's basically asking, like, Father, is there any other way than this? Is it, is it possible that there's another way that we could accomplish the mission? The mission of the Messiah was to be a, a ransom for many. I love that, that really Jesus is just showing his humanity here. And he's actually showing that he is, he is tempted to not go through with it. And to avoid the cross. Who wouldn't? Yet not what I will. I think in that moment, Mark just brought both of those questions to bear. Who is Jesus? And what does it mean to be his disciple? What would change in your life if you prayed like that? And we would prioritize his will above anything else. Be willing 
He's asking just humanly, is there any other way? But he knew the answer, right? This is the only way. Jesus had to suffer and he had to do it alone. He had to come under the wrath of God in our place to pay for our sins. He knew this was the will of his father because he knew Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was God's plan. What I love here is that, that it's Jesus' love for his father and for us that's greater than his desire to escape the wrath of God. That he actually wanted to obey his father and to ransom us from slavery to sin more than he wanted to avoid suffering. Is there anyone like him? You see that that sparkling diamond against a black canvas that, that stands out in unique and stunning beauty. That's our Savior. That's why we worship him. There's no one like him. And he did this submitting to his Father and submitting to suffering for me. Because I am weak, just like the rest of the disciples here. Look at verse 37. He came, and he found them sleeping. Apparently, they didn't realize all that Jesus is going through. They're kind of conked out in this moment. And, and before we feel bad, you know, like, like uh, get on these guys for uh, being terrible friends, um, this is... Um, I, I don't really completely blame them. It's, they just had an awesome Passover meal, and they're full, and it's dark, and it's late. And, and uh, this is like um, after you've eaten big old Christmas dinner, and you're passed out on the couch watching football. Anybody experienced that a little bit this week? Okay. All right. How many of you feel like you should not be held responsible for anything you say or do in that moment? Fair? Right? So I don't feel bad for these guys at first, but, but look at who Jesus comes to. Look at who he talks to. He talks to Peter, and he said, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? And I just imagine Peter's like, sorry, Jesus, like, I, I didn't know you were going to pray for an hour. Like, I was, I was good with a five-minute prayer meeting, but, man, I'm, I'm full, and, you know, we just ate, and, and I'm tired. And, and, and he comes to Peter, I think, he's, what he's really saying is, weren't you the one that just said a few verses ago, that even though they all fall away, I will not. Peter's had the warning. In fact, if you remember just a couple of days ago, he was on the top of the Mount of Olives and they were looking down on the temple and Jesus was telling them what was going to happen in the future. And in and, 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 and Mark chapter 13, the entire chapter, it concludes with this. Here's the one thing I want you to take away. He said, stay awake. Stay awake. He's been warned. And then he was warned again, uh, just a few hours earlier, when Jesus said, you will all 
fall away. And they were so adamant. There's like, no way. It's not going to happen. And, and, and he said, actually, uh, this very night, you're, uh, you're going to deny me three times. And, and he was so confident in that moment. Like, it's, I, I'm not going to do it. It's not going to be, it's, it's not gonna be me. Uh, but you would think that, that maybe if Jesus was telling you it's going to happen tonight, uh, that you would want to stay alert and and maybe you'd pray a little bit and ask God to give you the strength to really, uh, you know, pass the test and, and you'd be ready for it. But here he is, he's, he's passed out on the couch. And so Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What an example he's given us, right? That when we are in the heat of the moment of temptation, we need to be on our knees praying depending on his strength. I love that we're coming to this at the end of 2018 and beginning a new year because I could think of no better place for us than to be starting a new year right there with this reminder that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It is so dangerous for us to trust in our own strength, in our own resolve. Like, I'm going to fix myself, and I'm going to be different, and I'm going I'm to start a new resolution, and I'm going to try harder. And listen, listen, this story is proving we are no better than the disciples. Just a few hours ago, they were so confident in themselves that they would, they'd follow Jesus anywhere. And here they are failing the test. Three times. You would think after the first or second time, somebody might set an alarm or something, but Jesus keeps coming back like, are you still sleeping? What he's trying to show us is that when it comes to temptation, our flesh is weak. Never trust in yourself to overcome. You can't do it. Only Jesus can. And that's why he was submissive to suffering. He did it for me. Because I am weak. That's the beautiful contrast of the gospel. That where I am weak, he is strong. So I think, I know this week, you're probably thinking about who you want to be this year and what you want to do and some of the things you want to accomplish and, and set goals. I get that. Set goals. That's great. But don't merely set goals. This ought to be a reminder for us to get on our knees in humble dependence on Christ and pray. Pray that his power is made perfect in our weakness and stay alert to our need for him. So here comes Judas. Let's keep reading. Verse 43. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given him a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? 
Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all, all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Here's the second contrast between Jesus and sinners, but let's make sure we personalize it. Here it is. He calmly faced injustice because of my betrayal. We know this story, right? So it's interesting to me that that Mark um, has to mention to us that Judas came. Look at it. He says, one of the 12. It's like he's got to just twist the knife here. Like that's, it's, it was one of his own. It was one of his friends. Kind of a warning for us who would follow him as disciples. Judas joined Jesus' enemies and he's plotting with them. He makes a, he makes a mockery out of Jesus by greeting, greeting him with this uh, false respect, this, this kiss of death. But here's what I want you to notice. Notice that Jesus doesn't run away. He knew it was coming. He was waiting for Judas. And he actually faces his betrayer head on now. Why? Why? It's because of what we just saw in the garden. It's because Jesus has already overcome the temptation to avoid the cross. And he has submitted his will in obedience to his Father's will. And so he just let it happen. But then Mark inserts verse 47. Love this. It's like all of a sudden it's an action scene. Somebody drew his sword and and struck the servant of the high priest. And I think that's meant to lead us to think that that Jesus is is not going down without a fight. And all all the guys that are listening to this story right now of of Jesus versus Judas. And and we see the sick betrayal. I mean, he's one of those bad guys that's just easy to hate, isn't it? And, And as soon as we read this, we're like, yes, get him. Fight back! And, and we almost expect there to be this scene where, where you know, Jesus is fighting at him and, and he's kind of up against the ropes and then he turns the tide and finishes him off, right? But that's not what happens, is it? Verse 48, Jesus says, have you come out as against a robber with swords? You think I'm here to fight? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching like you could have come then. He's just showing the injustice and the cowardice of this move. He says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. See, Jesus is not the uh, revolutionary that we might have expected in the Messiah. But he's showing us again that the mission of the Messiah would be accomplished, not by raising up swords in rebellion, but by the innocent Son of God standing in the place of rebels coming under the crushing blow of his father's wrath. And so he calmly faces the injustice because he did it for sinners who don't deserve it. Because look at how they respond, verse 15. They all, they all left him and fled, just like he said they would. Just like the scriptures prophesied that they would, Zechariah 13, 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
just a few hours ago. They all insisted that they, 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 they wouldn't do this. But here in the end, it's not only Judas, but they all betray him and left him alone. And then we get this weird little story in verse 51 and 52 of this, this young man who ends up running away without anything on. So kind of random, and, and honestly, Mark is the only one who includes it. And, and so some uh, traditions believe that um, this may have actually been Mark. That might have been his way. We don't know. But that might have been his way of telling us that, that he was a witness, that he was there um, identifying with the failure of the disciples as well. But the fact that this young man remains nameless, that he's just this mystery man, might be Mark's way of saying, this could be you too. Insert yourself here. Don't think you're above this. Don't think that it wouldn't have been you. In fact, the book of Amos chapter 2 verse 16 says, he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Don't think that you're strong enough. Don't trust in your own resolve. Don't think that you're different and it wouldn't happen to you. Every single one of his disciples ran away in fear. And the image of this young man running away with nothing on speaks to the shame that we have when we abandon Christ and run from him. Every single one. Isaiah 53 said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So I think it's an opportunity for us then to confess. Confess sin. I said, I, I was hoping that today we would just get a better view of Jesus. And the more we look to Christ, we begin to realize there's stuff in my life that needs to change. But I want to just set some goals and set some new resolutions this year. I want to start the year in a place of humility and dependence on him. I need him. And Dr. Daniel Aiken closes it like this. In the first garden, the Garden of Eden, Adam said to the Father, Not your will, but mine be done. And all of creation was plunged into sin. In the second garden, the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the second Adam, says, Not my will, but yours be done. And the redemption and salvation of all creation begins. Father, thank you for sending your son. And we've taken time this holiday season to remember that and to celebrate that. We're just confessing, I'm confessing that we don't completely understand. We will never know how much it cost for you to pay the price for our sin. And what it must have been like for you to look up to heaven and have a completely dis different experience. And you did that for me. 
thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are merciful and gracious. I pray as we start this new year, Lord, we'd start it on our knees. Praying in humble dependence and asking, God, would you just show your power, make your power perfect in our weakness. So we boast about our weaknesses because then we get to boast about Christ. We love you, God. We love you for what you've accomplished for us. We pray that we would be more like your son and respond the way he has. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.